How are we doing? Everybody good? Well, this is our next to the last uh, sermon in this series called The Untouchables, uh, where we've been looking at books of the Bible that um, aren't usually preached about. So if you're new to Fullness, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Yes, you came on the Sunday where the pastor is going to talk about money uh, a little bit, but not too much. Um, I know we get accused of that a lot, but uh, we don't actually speak of it that much here, so we're going to talk about money, and if, you, if that's not enough, come next week and we'll talk about sex. So, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, so two great weeks in a row, glad you're here. <laughs> Turn to the book of Malachi. Turn to the book of Malachi. While you're turning there, um, one of my sons, Adam, is a, they gave him a fancy title. I think he's called a wildlife biologist or something, but basically he's a tour guide in um, the Grand Tetons and in Yellowstone, which, I don't know, I, I like his life. When I, when I, when I grow up, I want to be one of my children uh, because they live a better life than I do in some ways. Anyway, he's living out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and he's a tour guide for the Grand Tetons. Or He takes people to drive around and look at wildlife, and it's a great job, isn't it? Um, anyway, this past Thursday, he went to a hotel, picked up some, some, some lady with her teenage kids, and she introduces herself. They get in the van. They're going on a, what's called a sunrise tour in the, the Grand Tetons. And so Adam, you know, he's trying to make small talk, um, trying to find out who these people are and what they do. And, so, and he does this every day with different ones. And so he's asking the lady, hey, where, where are you guys from? And she goes, oh, we're from, we're from Washington, D.C. Oh, great. I got a friend in Washington, Reagan. Anyway, she didn't know, so he's talking. And he goes, what do you do in Washington? She goes, oh, I work in, I work in politics. Oh, great. Where, well, what do you do? And she goes, oh, well, I work in the White House. Oh, really? You work in the White House? That's great. What do you do in the White House? She's like, well, I, I, I'm an advisor to President Trump. And uh, Adam, Adam, in his wisdom, says to her, you know, I should probably know who you are, but I don't. <laughs> Which uh, is honest, right? Uh, you should probably know who else. So he, he, you know, he, he had learned her name, but he gets out of the car and someone comes up to him and says, hey, is that Kellyanne Conway that is uh, in your thing? And he goes, well, yeah. And he's still like, he, he doesn't even know the name. He doesn't know who this is. And so he has no idea. And he says to her, basically, you know, I don't have a television. I don't keep up with politics. I don't even keep up with sports. I just do tours and climb and hike. And she was like very gracious, very nice, gave him a good tip. And um, so she was very generous as well. And they had a great morning. And so he calls me and says, hey, Dad. Should I know who Kellyanne Conway is? Should I know her? And I said, do you mean the, the first woman to successfully run a presidential campaign? That Kellyanne Conway? And he goes, oh, yeah, I, I think so. And I said, yeah, I think you should know who she is. I mean, heck, she got Trump elected president. She's got to be really smart. That was a joke, people. Uh, so uh, anyway, I said, how about Sarah Sanders, Huckabee Sanders? Do you know who she is? Never heard of her. I said, yes, yeah, and you're, you should have said to her, you know, I love what President Obama's doing right now, and I, that would really, uh, 
tip things off. And so if you're here today and you don't know who Kellyanne Conway is, that name didn't mean anything to you, that's fine. That's fine. I went home because the apple doesn't fall very far, right, from the tree. So I go home to Kathy and I said, hey, Kath, do you know who Kellyanne Conway is? And she goes, yeah, isn't she that country western singer? <laughs> I'm a total failure in many areas of my life. I like Adam's line, though. I probably should know who you are, but I, I really don't. In the book of Malachi, you find a people who think they know who God is, but they really don't. They have taken a turn where they're saying they know God, but really their lives are not a picture of a reflection of what God has given them as the people of God to do. In this series, and you know, we're coming through like our, what, fourth, fifth, sixth minor prophet in a row? After a while, if you've done this every single week, it starts to get a little wearing. Things are really gloomy. You've screwed up. I'm coming to judge, but here's a glimmer of hope. And yet, Malachi is placed at the end of the Old Testament, I think for a very specific reason. Not only historically have they come to a place where the people of God are, you know, they've, the, the nation of Judah has been taken off into captivity the temple, the walls have been destroyed. Now they've come back from captivity to ba from Babylon. The walls have been repaired. The temple has been rebuilt. Sacrificial stuff is taking place again. But they have not changed. For everything they've been through, they've still not given themselves to God. And times were hard. And the people were very, very selfish. And... They were living self-centered lives, and these selfish lives that they're living are reflected in their, their worship of God. And God is coming to them and said, listen, here's what I expect of you. Here's what I have expected, and it's been pretty clear that these are some of the things I've expected, and you still refuse after all of this, all you've been through, the grace I've shown, and, and as, long as, as well as the judgment that bring you back into this place, you're still not living lives like you should. Now, listen, selfishness has been a problem since the garden, right? Uh, if you go back, the nature of sin is, did God really say you wouldn't? He's trying to trick you, and so you need to get what you can for you. And since then, we have lived self-centered lives. And it's reflected in this short book, four chapters out of the book of Malachi. Now, I'm not going to get into all the, um, you know, I can't even cover four chapters in one Sunday. But just to give you kind of a picture of what happens, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi to the people. And he gives six different words, six different oracles, six different, whatever you want to call them, problems, uh, issues. And so I'm not even going to cover all six. I'm just going to kind of lump them together because I think um, if starting with the interior ones, numbers three and four, it has to do with others. Numbers two and five has to do with ourselves. And one and six have to do with God. And so I'm going to take them in that order. Though I think in order of importance, we should have started with the third one and worked backwards. In other words, we should have gone God, ourselves, others. But 
I want to take it in this reverse order just to kind of look at what does God expect of us. In the book of Malachi, you see this passage where he's promising that he is, he's going to come, even though all of this stuff is going to take place and what he's desiring, he's, going to, he's saying to them this hope at the very end of the Old Testament and about God himself coming to earth. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who is that referencing? Well, not yet. John the Baptist. Thanks, Emily. Uh, but yeah, John the Baptist. I will send the messenger before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will, will come. So he's saying, I'm going to send a messenger, then God's going to, I'm going to come to this earth. So he's giving these messages of hope. And again, Malachi is filled with great, awesome passages talking about a refiner's fire, uh, the prophet of Elijah coming, um, stuff on giving. So there's a lot of great scripture passages that we could take different angles on. But here's what I want to kind of level for us today is, what does God desire of us? What did he desire of these people? And what does he desire of us? And when I put these points out here, they sound so basic. God desires for us to love others authentically. To love others authentically. The people of God are to be characterized for our spirit of love. The way we love other people. Now, what Malachi, what God is telling them in this passage is, you're not doing that. You are not loving as you should love. I mean, when Jesus speaks the greatest commandment, he says they are to love God with everything they are and to love others. Treat, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the summary of the commandments. They, they weren't loving God, which we'll get to in a minute, but they also weren't even loving others. And look at the different ways Malachi talks about this. Malachi 2.10, he says, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Within the nation themselves, they're breaking faith with one another. They're not treating their neighbor, their Israel, their Jew. Israelite Jewish neighbor as they, as they should. He even breaks it down more in Malachi 2, verses 14 through 25. He says, you ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So they're, they're, they're not loving their neighbor as themselves. They're not, you know, their Jewish neighbor. They've broken faith. And God is making it clear he is their father. They're to treat their fellow Jewish person part of the nation as they should, but they're not even treating their families like they should. He's saying, why are you breaking covenant with the wife of your youth? God desires godly offspring. He, he desires fruitfulness. 
So they're breaking faith with, I think you get the point. They are not loving authentically the person next door or the person in their house. Not only that, but they were, the nation of Israel was designed to be a light to the nations. God called them as a people who would love him and love each other so that the people who aren't godly would look at them and say there's something different about them and be drawn to God. So they're not treating their neighbor right, they're not treating their wife right, and they're also not treating those nations right. They're not looking outward. He says, see, so, so, excuse me, so I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. Okay, we, we agree with that, right? You know, we're like, oh yeah, I, I'm on board with that. And let's get those sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. But then he goes on, and it seems like some of these don't measure up to the same level. Against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Seems like some of those categories to me don't rank up to some of the other categories. But what he's saying is, listen, your goal as a people was to be a light to the nations. And by the way, you're treating one another. You're, you're defrauding people. You're, you're, you're taking advantage of widows. You're, you're not living in a gracious way. You're not providing justice to those who are not part of the nation of Israel, aliens. You, you are, you're not loving authentically. They had a discernible lack of love for the people around them. We're living in a time, it seems as if, where there is a discernible lack of love. In our homes, in our churches, in our nation, for people in general. I read an article this past week in Time Magazine. It was, it was entitled this, <clears throat> What Archaeologist Found at the Farm Where Woodstock Was Held? Now, let me, let me read that title to you again. It says this, What Archaeologists Found at the Farm Where Woodstock Was Held. So you may know that this is the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, archaeologist, Really? Going to dig at the farm where, I mean, don't archaeologists, aren't they supposed to go back hundreds of years, thousands of years, but going back to Woodstock seems a little premature to me, but nonetheless, they were found out, what they found out was people actually cleaned up the place pretty well. They didn't find that much stuff uh, at Woodstock, but it started reminding me about how in the late 60s, 67, 68, 69, the summer of love, uh, Woodstock, all that was taking place, we're going to usher in a new period in our nation's history where there's going to be a discernible love for one another. And here we stand 50 years later, kind of looking back and saying, wow, that didn't work out so well. And why was that? Well, honestly, we, we know in hindsight, and probably most of us knew at the time, even though I was, you know, barely a baby then, um, but... <clears throat> the people who were really in tune with things knew at the time, that it was a kind of love that was fueled by uh, sex and selfishness and actually drug and drugs. I mean, it was all about sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? A selfish kind of love. 
And that selfish kind of love is not the kind of love that God is talking about here. He's talking about the kind of love that gives itself away, that forgives and accepts and honors. Because, I mean, really, you can't love people outside of our church well if you're more concerned about what's taking place with yourself. You're not going to love the world because there's a lot to dislike. You're not going to you're not going to really love people in our church that well if you don't forgive and honor and accept. And let me just go ahead and say it. You're not going to love in your home very well if you don't forgive and honor and accept. Because it is hard to love people well. Most of us, if we're honest, we have a loving tolerance of people. That's the best we can work up. You know what? I... I I love them. But what you really mean is I can tolerate them. We're talking about the kind of love that gives itself away. Love others authentically. I mean, even the New Testament says, look, you can, have the, you can be the most gifted spiritual person in the world, but if you don't have love, you're just, you're a clanging symbol. Love others authentically. Live, our, live your lives, live our lives sacrificially, sacrificially. Let me read several passages in here. I'll comment on them, I'll illustrate it, and then we'll move on. Live our lives sacrificially. He goes on, and he talks about their method of worship. And he says, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? I'm in Malachi 1, 13 14. He says, cursed is the cheat who has, an accept, who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, it, it seems as if God is talking about sacrifices that are offered to him in worship, and he is. But what he, I think he's saying in this passage is this. Look, you, you claim to be worshipers of mine, and you're even bringing animals to be sacrificed. But the way you're bringing them says, I'm just going to kind of go through the motions. I'm going to do what I think I'm supposed to do, but it's really not in my heart. Because if it was in my heart to really give sacrificially, I would give of my best. Instead, I'm trying to give what I can do to get by. He goes on in Malachi 3 in this famous passage where he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? He goes on in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be found in my house. There may be food. I can't read anymore. There may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. It goes on and says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I could uh, 
flip here and make this about giving and about tithing. Um, this is a powerful passage that we can talk about giving and tithing. And, you know, honestly, you know, what church would say, oh, stop bringing your money. We got enough, you know, kind of thing. Um, not us. I'm sure there might be one out there, but that's not us. But it, this is really more about the nature of the heart. And it has been my contention from day one that if we get people whose hearts are completely given to God, then we don't have to harp on giving and tithing and all of those kind of things because we'll want to. It will be genuine in who we are before the Lord. We're to live our lives sacrificially. They were bringing a sacrifice that was like, they were supposed to bring their best, right? They're supposed to bring their best lamb to give before the Lord. But instead, they were looking out, I got to give a sacrifice to the Lord today, so I'm going to take that crippled one over there. He's not any good anyway. I'll bring him to the Lord. And, you know, I'll fulfill my obligation, but we're to give of our best. Doesn't the word sacrifice mean it cost us something? That there's an element of costliness to it? So in their giving system, they were to give God their best, they were to give to God first, and they were to give to God something that cost them something. In 1981, there's an Australian internist, uh, a man named Barry Marshall, and he developed a theory at the Royal Perth Hospital where he was practicing. When, when I was growing up, um, people who had ulcers, everybody would say it was, it was related to stress. You know, they're too stressed out, and the stress is creating acid in their stomach, and the acid is creating ulcers, and they're having tons of problems. So they need to relax. Well, this guy, he theorized that ulcers were not caused by stress, but by a specific type of bacteria that got in the stomach. And when he started his uh, theorizing, people just made fun of him. And he couldn't get tests done. He, he wanted to do, he, he, because of the type of bacteria that was found in the human stomach, he couldn't do tests on rats because they didn't have the same makeup, and so they couldn't carry that same bacteria. They wouldn't allow him to, to, to carry out the tests on mammals or humans to test his theory, so he didn't know what to do, but he was very convinced that this was indeed the case, that it was that bacteria that could be cured in a different way. So what he did was something incredibly stupid, but sacrificial in that he actually ingested the bacteria himself. He found the only ethical way for him was to say, I'm going to take this bacteria and I'm going to prove that this is the case. And indeed, he got ulcers as a result of ingesting the, ba the bacteria. Then he designed the treatment of himself, which he then took. And in 2005, he won a Nobel Prize because of his work in this area and diagnosing the fact that ulcers really ultimately didn't come from stress-related issues, but by this specific type of bacteria found in the system. Now, Barry was willing to sacrifice himself in order to prove his, his theory. Most of us, when we come before the God, we aren't, you know, God is an addition to our lives. And so when we talk about giving, for instance, which reflects our heart, Jesus talked more about money than probably almost any other topic. When it comes to money and giving, 
Most of us say, you know, I'll give to God what I've got left over. I'll give to God an extra. And then we start debating, hey, is this whole tithing thing, is that Old Testament, that 10% thing, is that Old Testament kind of issue? And then we start, and then we start arguing, is that on the net or the gross or... You know, we, we, we kind of divide it all, all down. The Christmas before my dad passed away, um, we were sitting at the table and we were talking about possibly doing a series of sermons on tithing last year. And my dad, in his, uh, in his more than gracious way, he's like, that's a dumb topic. You know, he was like, my dad, in his later years, he just was so straightforward. And we're like, okay, Paul, Paul, why, why do you think that's done? And he goes, you know, tithing is, it's just, if you have to teach people about tithing and just really hammer it, you've lost the battle. He said, God gave his son and he gave everything for us. And we're talking about whether we should be given a stinking 10% or not. You know, again, he said it in more direct language than even this. And he started talking about how he and my mom, every year they would pray about what God would have them to give to the church. And it, 10% was like the bare nothing. You know, when you start realizing what Christ has done for us, his sacrifice on the cross for us, the fact that we are totally and completely his, then what is our reasonable act in this? According to Paul, in light of all God's done for us, offer your bodies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Give of yourself totally. Give of yourself to him in every single way. Live sacrificial lives. And what, what does that mean? It means that our hearts, our beings are aligned with him. You know, it's one thing to mentally say, I believe in God, mentally assent to the truth that there is a God. It's another thing to give ourselves to him totally and completely, to live a sacrificial life. Third and final point is this. Worship God completely. Worship God completely. Final couple of passages. And again, I would encourage you to read all of Malachi, four chapters. It'll take you not long, um, not long to read, to just get the entire flow of the entire thing. But he says this. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horah for all Israel? See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. What, what does this mean? Well, he's talking about, of course, the coming. But what is it he's looking for? He's looking for people whose hearts are his, who will turn their hearts toward him. Here's my kind of point on this. We too often worship God 
in the way we want to worship him. You know, instead of saying, God, how do you want to be worshipped? We say, you know, I don't like that song. I don't really like the way we're, this is happening. I don't like the way that's happening. Here's how I feel like worshiping God today. Now, I'm not trying to totally minimize your feelings. Not totally. But I think you should flip it and say, God, how do you want to be worshiped today? If the heart is given to God and is completely His, then rather than us coming to God on our terms, we come to God on His. And we say, through the power of the Spirit, through the truth of God's Word, through who God is, God, how do you want me to worship you sacrificially and completely today? So many illustrative passages that we could, we could talk about, but I'll just give you one. <clears throat> do you remember right after David becomes king? He, go, he says, you know what? The ark, the chest, it's been... It's, it's not been here for a while uh, since the Philistines sent it back. It's been gone that long, really, from a longer biblical story, but it's not in Jerusalem. David says, hey, I'm going to organize a parade, and we're going to go get it and bring it back. So he gets the band, cheerleaders, all of them. They go down to get the, the, the ark, and they put it on a cart. Seems reasonable. Right? A new cart, even. Not an old cart. David got a new cart. Put the ark on the new cart. Gets the parade going. Band's playing. They're singing. They're having a party as they're bringing the ark up. And <clears throat> the ark, the, some oxen stumble. The, the cart kind of tips a little bit. And um, the ark starts to fall off. Well, we don't, want the, we don't want the ark falling off. So a guy puts his hand up. Uzzah puts his hand up so the, the ark won't fall and get busted. So you think God would say, hey, good job, Isaiah. Save the ark. No, he kills him. Strikes him dead right there. And David is totally ticked off. David is like, I organized the parade. I bought a new cart. I went down and got it. Nobody else even cared it was down there. I'm the one who cared. What is this? Why did you kill this guy who was just trying to help? This makes no sense to me. So David just left it, and he goes back. In the meantime, he's going to go back and get it again. But before he goes back and get it, gets it again, by the way, he studies what God said about how the ark should be transported. And God had given specific instructions about how he wanted his presence, which the ark represents the presence of the Lord, how he wants his presence to move. It should be carried on the back of his priests, his holy ones. Rather than a new cart with a strong guy trying to keep it up, which is the way we do worship a lot of times, don't you think? New stuff, strong guy. God says, I want my worship, I want my presence to be carried on the backs of my holy servants. Now we could look at it and say, well, that just seems so petty. Do you know, we lose the, the picture. We lose the connect with what God wants done because we want to bring God to our terms rather than go to him on his. So God says, you know what? You, I can't, really, you can't even really come to me on mine, so I'm going to come to you, and then I'm going to put my presence in you, and I want, my, I want your heart completely mine so that we in turn can live 
lives that are what? Authentic. That we can love others truly. We can live sacrificially and we can worship him completely. I think the message of Malachi is this. I've loved you. I loved you, says the Lord. But then you say, well, how did you love me? And he goes on and says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I loved Jacob. And he goes on and says, and I didn't like Esau so much. I hated Esau. And you're like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right either. You know, what, what did Jacob bring to the table? You know, why did he love Jacob more than Esau? Why did he hate Esau and not Jacob? We, I mentioned this a week ago. This is the sovereignty of God at work. It wasn't anything Jacob brought to the table. It was who God is. Listen, people, here, here's, here's what I believe part of the message of Malachi is to, to us today. I, I love you. And I sent my son, this one that I promised was going to come, the refiner's fire, and he is a refiner. He wants to burn off the junk of your life. He wants you to live a life that's authentic before God. He wants, to, he wants you to love others completely, to give sacrificially, and to worship God completely. And we do that by saying, God, you're not an addition to my life. You are everything to me. May my life be changed in your presence. When we as the people of God come to the table where we take these elements, this bread and this cup, you know, if we're not careful, we can get ritualistic like the Israelites did with the whole sacrificial system. Ah, I'm supposed to bring a sacrifice. I'm supposed to do the communion because, you know, Jesus said, do this till I come. So I'll go do it. But there's an element, I think, when we come to the table of the Lord, in which we come and we say, this bread, we were, we were a bunch of different people. Because Christ's body was broken for us, we who were many are now one. We're to love each other completely. This cup, it represents the blood of Christ. My sins are forgiven. I want him to permeate like this bread and this wine does to every cell in my body. I want to be completely and totally his. I, I, want, to be, I want to be a reasonable worshiper, which means I'm going to give myself to him completely and totally. So don't, don't see this as like you're bringing a, a broken-legged lamb to a sacrifice. I'm going to give God just the minimal amount. But instead, I would encourage you as you come to the table of the Lord today to say, I'm going to give myself to him totally, completely today so that I can worship him with every moment, every breath, everything that I have, that I can live my life. When I go to work tomorrow or school this week as school starts back and wherever I go to a restaurant right after this or home to eat, that, that I will, I'm going to love others like I'm supposed to love him and live a life that's sacrificial before him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. We glory in you. And we thank you for the message of Malachi that, that God, we, we can align ourselves with you. 
God, this morning, you know, honestly, we know about you, but we don't know you all that well at times. We know we should know you, but we don't. And I pray that this morning, God, we would, you would reveal yourself afresh and anew to us today. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table of the Lord, that we would, you would show us, Lord, how we can love people better. Lord, I pray that as we come to this table, that chains would be broken off of us. Bad ways of thinking, uh, habits that should be, we could be set free from, that you would, you would set us free new today. That God, as we come to the table, that you would fill us afresh and new with your presence. That the table of your presence would permeate our lives. That we would not only be set free and filled with your presence, we would be healed. God, thank you for what you're going to do. We don't see this as just some ritual, some religious thing we go through, but we, we believe that, God, we will meet you here. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.